The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today started her career in politics by working in Barack Obama's 2012 re-election campaign while studying abroad. She then went to work for the Leave campaign for the Brexit referendum, followed by jobs with Theresa May and Boris Johnson. It was during her time with Johnson where she caught the media's attention, being described as a gazelle to Dominic Cummings' pit pony. She has also said that she was something of a nanny to the Prime Minister. However, she left her role at number 10 soon after the departure of Cummings. She then went on to work on arrangements for the COP26 summit and has now published her first book, a satirical fiction about three young women trying to make their way in Westminster. My guest today is Cleo Watson. And so anyway, Cleo, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Now, to begin, we always ask everyone the same question, which was, was yours a happy childhood? And you grew up in Wales, am I correct? That's right. Yeah, I, it was a very happy childhood. I'm one of six. I'm the fifth girl. And then there's one boy in the end. And we kind of grew up in the middle of nowhere. My parents ran a business together from home. So they were around a lot. And I had all these siblings to kind of muck about with and have this real sense of freedom. We weren't really allowed to watch TV, but we were allowed to roam anywhere we wanted outside. And, you know, sounds very wholesome, but like make tree houses and dam streams and this kind of stuff. That being said, if particularly once I became a teenager, if you wanted to go somewhere, you had to sort of figure it out for yourself. Um, Mum and dad were not big. Yes, yes, I'll drive you around to teenage parties and stuff like that. So as much as there was freedom, you had to be quite resourceful to do the things you wanted to do as well. Does that mean you had to hitchhike? I I didn't hitchhike, but I had some friends who... I, I tried to learn to ride a moped, but almost immediately crash into a wall um and I and really the first person to pass their driving test became kind of the, the most important person in the county basically so growing up pretty outdoorsy was it particularly current affairs politically focused household or or not so much N- not really that I remember but I think my parents I suspect spoke to my older siblings much more about it. At the dinner table, it was really about food. It's a big kind of passion of of my family's and jokes and anecdotes. My dad's this amazing raconteur and most of my kind of childhood memories around the dinner table were jokes and him telling kind of outrageous stories from when he'd been younger. And what food are we talking just before we move? Very hearty stuff, roast chickens, stews, um, steamed treacle puddings, that kind of stuff. And anything that like Mrs. Weasley makes in Harry Potter was the kind of stuff we were chowing down on. Great, I'll come to stay. Um, <laughs> now, you go into study at Cardiff University, politics and economics. Um, so at that point, do you have a sense that you want to go and work in politics or were you just quite interested? I was just quite interested. I um, Many of my sisters had studied history and so I understood how useful it was to have a kind of humanities degree and I thought adding a bit of economics would make me more employable. But actually... I was hopeless at the economics bit, so I almost immediately kind of shelved that. And um, the the thrust of it was kind of political science. And 
I just thought this would be an interesting subject to go after something slightly different to history, but ultimately along the kind of same philosophical roots. And um, from there, I got the bug. And you go to America? Yes. Yeah, so um, this um, this amazing program opened up where Cardiff and um, the College of William, William and Mary in Colonial Williamsburg um, did a kind of exchange program. So I got to go there for a year, um, which I thought would be the kind of red cup experience, but actually everyone's dressed as sort of milkmaids and stuff because it's a kind of living museum. Um, and from there, I found out that you could as part of your kind of course credits, go and work on like either a campaign or in a think tank. And that's how I ended up um, on Obama's 2012 campaign. What does that involve? What level are we talking? Are you like, <laughs> I don't want to insult, I mean, are you dishing out leaflets? No, are you being uh, <laughs> more strategic? Like, is, and I never quite know how campaigning America, you know, you know, you're going to help. Totally. It's, it's, it's a halfway house, I'd say. So I worked in the finance team at the DNC, which is in DC. And obviously their, their main job is fundraising and American campaigns raise an absurd amount of money, like yeah. really billions. And when they worked out I was British, they kind of had this, they, they said to me, well, in some places in the US and particularly Southern states, if you've got a British secretary, then it shows that you're really successful. And there's a kind of like money penny vibe to it. So <laughs> I ended up putting in loads of phone calls to really quite wealthy donors, particularly in the Southern states saying, you know, oh, hello, you wonder whether you'd like to give us a million dollars. And they'd be like, darling, well, I'll do it for yard signs. And I'd say, yes, that's very interesting. Have you heard of um, Facebook advertising? And <laughs> that's where we'll put your money. So yeah, I, I guess that was the beginning of my um, nannying career, perhaps. Like that a lot, just working out where you can be the most effective. Um, so you come back to the UK, mm-hmm. and at that point, I suppose, it's, do you soon after that get involved with the Vote Leave campaign, or am I missing out a big chunk of your life? There's a, there's a year in between, yeah. and well, a couple of years actually. What I had taken from the Obama campaign was the importance of kind of marketing and branding, partly because he was this very sort of cool figure that people were interested in, and the amount of merchandising they had and um, the way they were able to use sort of really beautiful design to persuade people I found interesting. So I thought I'd like to go into that more kind of commercial part of campaigning and I really enjoyed it. It was very, very interesting and you learn all kinds of stuff about logos but also about things like experiences, brand experiences. So I can't really walk into a badly designed shop anymore without feeling stressed because I've had all these presentations on like exactly why the Apple store is laid out the way it is and stuff. Um, And then the opportunity came up to work on the Leave campaign in the EU referendum. I um, bumped into Dominic Cummings one day who I'd known for a while. He was a friend of my sister's and he said, if you're still interested in campaigning, you should work on the ref- on the referendum. This was summer 2015. And I said, oh, what, what's that? And he said, well, what do you think about the EU? And I was sort of 24, 25 and said, oh, I'm, I don't know really, but I am really interested in working on a campaign. What, what do you think I should do? And he said, well, you'll really have an interesting experience if you come onto the Leave campaign. You know, you'll get a much better kind of campaigning experience because you know the Remain campaign had a lot of people flooding to come work for it whereas I really managed to get in um, and 
maybe not have a seat at the table on the Leave campaign, but at least be able to see the table and listen in on what was going on. Um, and truthfully, I thought, oh, well, it, it'll probably lose, but it'll be really interesting working for the underdog. So it was a bit of a shock in the end, the result. <laughs> and so I suppose in that would it be fair to say you picked to work on the Vote Leave campaign more for an an interesting experience than because of your political views. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things I battle with myself on quite a lot is that I, I don't think I'm particularly driven by ideology. One of the things I've often envied people who worked on campaigns like the Leave One or worked for a political party is that they feel so dedicated to that cause. It's it's almost like belonging to a church or a cult or something. It's a real community for them. And um, like the party or the campaign or the issue is everything. And I think on the referendum, that was like my first experience of thinking quite selfishly, I'll get a really interesting experience doing this. Um, not, you know, sovereignty and borders and yeah. bendy bananas are like the hill I will die on. And did you have any friends or family? Um, you'd be like, hang on a minute. Uh, <laughs> Do you know which side you're on or, or were people pretty supportive? So I would say include like not just on the referendum but in in later politics too my friends and family have been pretty split on everything and I actually think it's a real mark of how supportive and kind they are that they've really been able to look past lots of political stuff you know I've had family members during the Brexit marches who were like marching down Whitehall and I was in number 10 and <laughs> that was that was a bit awkward wave as you go by hey um but I think actually that's a real I think I think a lot of people have had that experience I know I know kind of politics can tear some families and friendships apart but I, I think you need to be able to have that kind of separation and maybe being on the practical side rather than the ide- ideological side it's like afforded a bit more um reason perhaps from friends and family yeah and I suppose we'll get into the specifics of the jobs but I wonder then because I do understand being less you know this is my cause mm-hmm. um but if you're working I suppose you know we can say for two different Tory leaders as well as the Vote Leave campaign do you think you could have done the same role for two Labour leaders and the Remain campaign what, like a civil servant? Like, like, in, like do, you, do you think, like, is in, like, or do you think there is a bit of your instinct which is perhaps leaning to the right? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I mean, I think, like a lot of people, I feel fundamentally just more comfortable now and now things are back to the centre, arguably less charismatic, but, but centrist. Whereas, obviously, we had this very polarised period of, at one point, having Jeremy Corbyn and Boris yeah. Johnson. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I think I I think I sit in the middle, and I don't mind the the tensions of both. But you know, I I can't see me being hired or working for Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> you never know. Life, <laughs> life, life is long. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then oh, actually, to ask you, I re- I remember the first time I saw you was uh, during the EU referendum. Campaign. We didn't meet. I just saw you because didn't you leave the was it the umbrella? On Boris Johnson's That's doorstep. That's right. It was a number and a hat. Said, Is that right? Yeah, yeah. That was so. Yeah, the guys said to me, "Listen, we've got, we've got a job for you," and I didn't 
quite realise what it entailed. But essentially, we just we need someone to go and um, put this umbrella and hat on Boris Johnson's doorstep. We know he's like chewing over what to do. I didn't realise there'd be so many cameras and stuff so outside. Many. And I've never really... Well, I hadn't experienced that before because I was sort of 25. And um, and so I just walked up and put on a thing. I thought, fine, thinking, don't trip over. And then I came back and someone sort of stuck a microphone under my nose and said, you know, if, you, if you've got any comment. And I'd, I just went like, um... We just really hope that Mr. Johnson <laughs> comes and works on the leave campaign. Thank you. Then I got back in the car and the guys were like, oh yeah, really sell it. Well, say it with confidence, why don't you? Um, now, I attended your book launch mm. and um, one of the fascinating things about it was these days the Tory party can be a little bit factional. Mm. There's a little bit of bad blood. I think it's fair to say between different groups. Yet you managed to have, uh, I think as, as someone who uh, has worked in government said to me, this is probably the first time in years I managed to be at a space where there were your Theresa Mayites, I think also including Theresa May herself, <laughs> some of the Boris Johnson not, mm. <laughs> you know, all these different eras. Cameroons. Cameroons, yeah. exactly. Some of the vote leave, all this sense of everyone coming together, which uh, clearly suggests that you... Um, you keep friends as opposed to, to making enemies. But I wondered, um, you went from obviously the Vote Leave referendum to a role working with Theresa May. Mm -hmm. But clearly for lots of people in Vote Leave, they did not want Theresa May to take to take over. So how did that come about and what was that like? So there was actually a year off okay. in between. So um, she obviously took over in summer 2016. And then um, I had, I, I suppose, about nine months of... Um, working around I worked with um, someone from the Remain campaign who'd set up their own um, communications agency and I did a bit of work with Michael Gove in his parliamentary office because he was on he was banished to the back benches by then yeah. um, and I think that if you're quite a practical person no one thinks about it so much and actually it was Stephen Parkinson who'd worked with me on the Leave campaign and then become Theresa May's political secretary who hired me into number 10 after the quite bruising experience of the 2017 general election where I worked directly for Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy um, kind of organising their lives and maybe that helped to win kind of hearts and minds because obviously they'd had a pretty punishing election and in those kinds of roles you need someone that you can rely on and I'm not sure how helpful I was but you know they were always well turned out and ready for meetings and running on time so that's a good start and when you're in that role um because we've had fiona hill on this podcast previously mm. uh, we've had both the fiona hills um also the american expert <laughs> but in this case we mean Theresa may's former co-chief of star mm -hmm. and she documented that moment when you you begin to realize the snap election is not going to plan mm. um did you, could you tell that too when you were doing that role? And it was your job to kind of keep a brave face on it, just keep things ticking along? I really noticed the difference, actually, when we fought the 2019 general election. That I felt so sure we were going to win that because comparatively the atmosphere was so different to 2017, um, where it did begin yeah. well. But obviously, you know, for, bearing in mind, in on paper, actually, Theresa May won two million more votes than the previous election and stuff like that but it didn't work out in the right seeds and and it was a gen it was like a gentle seeping through the walls of despair I would say and 
I didn't think it so much at the time. I just thought, whoa, campaigns are so intense. Um, it wasn't until 2019 when I really got this sense of like rock and roll, we're winning, that I realised the difference. Um, yeah, and, and then we go, of course, to 2019, mm. where, again, the different leaders, you're suddenly working for Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, this is probably where you've probably spoken the most already um, in terms of that period, because you're quite quickly nicknamed the gazelle. Mm. How would you explain to listeners what your job was, uh, like, I suppose, you know, in the early days of the of the Boris Johnson premiership? Yeah, so, so actually kind of pre-COVID and then actually during COVID too, um, my job was to be outside Boris Johnson's office door, partly to keep an eye on him because he had multiple exits where he could sort of beetle out and you'd find him wandering around the building. Um, but chiefly to kind of have him ready for meetings, briefed and prepared so that other people could kind of get the decisions they need out of him. Like that's the way the system works in the UK is that he ultimately decides from the kind of menu of options he's given what he wants to happen. So, um, you know, from people who've worked with him before, um, he doesn't necessarily like that kind of wrangling. He likes to kind of um, have these big, wide-ranging conversations with as much disagreement as possible. Yeah, and Fraser always puts it a bit in the way that he almost wants to govern like you you would hold a Spectator magazine conference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's it's. I understood much, much more from working with him what editorial meetings must be like, um, partly because he is really interested in, you know, he's a newspaper guy, he's really interested in what the newspapers were saying all the time, um, particularly if they, you know, might have contained things that he'd accidentally brief to them um and and so it was really about kind of having him in the best possible place and that's where the kind of nannying comment came from um once he'd had covid he'd obviously been extremely unwell and so it took a bit of time like again we don't have a system that is set up for a prime minister who's feeling a bit under the weather and so time and effort needed to go into what he was eating, whether he was getting enough rest, um, was he speaking to his doctors regularly. But at the same time, we had a pandemic on. And so, you know, he you'd think, okay, he's got a meeting at 11 o'clock with Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty. We need to make sure he's ready for that. And um, that's the, I know I don't have children, but that's the closest I can imagine to kind of being in a nannying or childcare role. And during that time, the media start to write you up. And I think it was made in the mail on Sunday first as the gazelle. Mm. Did you find that? I mean, how did you find it? Did you find it a bit patronizing? Did you think, oh, it's better than being a pit pony? Or was it the thing in Westminster where often if you are a younger woman, you just get more media attention mm. because they're like using a photo, but I don't know how it feels to be the subject of it. Yeah, I mean, obviously gazelles are not sort of famed for their brain power they're really fast so you know that would have been helpful to be able to run away I guess but I think really what happened was I live very close to Dominic Cummings and we would come in to and from work together so I'd often be photographed getting in and out of a car with him and maybe I could have got out a block earlier and kind of walked in separately but that seems such a weird thing to do it seems a bit much it seems a bit much and you could what, have wore a balaclava <laughs> yeah exactly um well what i realized was uh, look it's it's one of those weirdly um kind of backhanded compliments something like that and 
British media are very, very good at that, these kinds of, um, uh, yeah, backhanded compliments. But really, I was alerted to not engage with it and to definitely not um, be pleased by it because these these news organisations can like turn yeah. on their heads any second and suddenly it can cause you real problems. And um, perhaps as Charlotte Owen is finding now, um, when they turn on you, it's not pleasant at all for for the sin of being a sort of tall blonde woman. Yes, and Charlotte Owen, for listeners who are not aware, is uh, about to become the youngest peer uh, of all time and lots of people asking uh, why, uh, what she has done to make Boris Johnson give her a peerage. Um, I suppose just just before um, we get into the novel, which is why we're here talking today, <laughs> um, how would you explain why you decided to leave number 10? Obviously, a little bit push pull, perhaps. Yeah. So, so when people ask me, I say I, I don't. I still don't know if I was fired or if I resigned. But seeing as I'm not going into the House of Lords, I suspect it's the former. Yeah, your name isn't anywhere on the resignation honours list, is it? I know. Did and you the- scroll? With, did, you, did you do Control F? Um, yeah. Well, if it wasn't at the top, it wasn't okay. on there at all. Um, yes. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that, but. Um, essentially the, the kind of job I was doing is, is quite personal and it blends this weird area of the kind of prime minister's private life because he lives in the building and his professional life and you know you sit at this desk right outside his door you're the first person he sees in the morning you're the last person he sees in the evening he calls you on the weekend when there's a panic and um, I think that he felt that I was too close to Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, who left two weeks before me. And what he'd been trying to say with his sort of lamp comment was essentially when when I look at you, when you speak up in meetings and start giving advice, I kind of hear the voice of Dominic and I just don't know if I can trust you anymore. I don't know if you're kind of his vessel for speaking forward now. And obviously that's not going to work in that job. And do you think he could have trusted you? I mean, he he trusted me enough to ask me back in January to work on COP26, which was obviously one of his kind of big legacy projects. Um, and he seemed to regret it ending because he was in touch a lot over the Christmas period saying, you know, maybe this is the wrong decision. But um, I think it was the right one for me, actually, Um you know, things only got choppier in number 10 and you have to have like the full support of the principal doing those jobs or you're kind of finished. And while you were in number 10, did you start thinking about writing your book? At what point did you have the idea? Um, yeah. And of course, I mentioned the book in the introduction. Some people are writing up as a, what's even like a bunk buster yeah, type book? Yeah. But ha- over, over halfway through, it's not it's a real mix in a sense, ultimately a story of three girls trying to make it in Westminster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, just on your first question, I did, I mean, I've been thinking about writing a book like this for ages, ever since I opened my first Julie Cooper in my teens. Um, but particularly once I, fin- well, once Theresa May resigned, I thought, oh, okay, fine, I'll go off and write this book. And then I got asked back into. Um, work with Boris Johnson and then when that ended I said no I really am going to do my book this time so it was always this kind of looming threat um, and a friend of mine actually gave me a little notebook saying careful or I'll put you in my novel um, which I would carry around 
Um, but on the on the sex point in the book, you're you're right to call it up because obviously it has been sensationalised into this kind of bonkbuster. But I really wouldn't describe it as as that actually, particularly because it's mainly about conservative MPs having sex. So it's it's not meant to be kind of intimate and sensual. It's get to get people's hearts it's racing. So it's like I'm trying to bring people in on the joke rather than like into the bedroom, um, and. Yeah, I I've described it before as the Matt Hancock arse grab of debut novels in that it's gripping but quite cringeworthy. Yeah, so if people say, oh, which always happens with, with um, so like, oh, the sex scenes aren't actually very sexy. Yeah. Um, it's like, you, that's not the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, of course they're not. <laughs> um, you mentioned Jilly Cooper. Have you ever shared your love of Jilly Cooper with uh, Rishi Sunak? I haven't, but I'm I'm dying to. I mean, he's gone, you know, wildly up in my estimations. And frankly, I think he should put his money where his mouth is. And why is she not getting a damehood? That's a very good point. It's about time. Uh, yeah, Dame Julie a, has a great that ring. Could be, to it. He could do a one name list. And <laughs> um, so, do you think we? So, when I was reading the novel, mm. one of the things that struck me is it just seems destined to be dramatized some way. Do you think we can expect to see a TV series or film in the future? I really hope so. So, we've actually sold the TV rights, which is really exciting, to a production company called Imaginarium, which is owned by Andy Circus, who yeah. most people call him. Yeah. Sadly, he's Gollum and like Planet of the Apes. So like, not many people perhaps even know what he looks like. And um, this chap called Jonathan Cavendish, who's done, who's produced amazing films, and he did like the Bridget Jones films and stuff. So I, but what's difficult to know is, you know, this 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 part of the deal has been done, but the really difficult bit now is to sell it to a Netflix or Amazon Prime or the BBC. And uh, truthfully, if kind of political sleaze and and political careers remain as part of the zeitgeist which I personally think they will um then hopefully it will get made and then we can have a proper sit down Katie and talk about casting and your cameo obviously oh yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) I don't I I know technically none of the characters are based off anyone and this makes it very clear at the beginning of the book Mm. but I think everyone in Westminster is still read it trying to work it out definitely um you do you have a Scottish journalist in there and I am technically Scottish but having Mm. listened to your audiobook that accent is far far beyond what mine is (laughs) Yeah, I didn't. And so, full disclosure to listeners, so Katie played me a little bit of the audiobook when I got here, and it is a very Scottish accent, and I hadn't quite intended that. But I think, great, people, you know, creators have to take this off in their own direction, and um, I'm sure we can we can mould the character just right to to fit a young Katie Balls. Yeah. Also, I, I heard you're already working on another book, so you still have time. Yeah, it's a sequel actually to this one, so um, and which will bring in the Labour Party, and so they'll get a fair amount of lampooning as well. It's only fair. Maybe just in time for a Labour government. Mm. <laughs> now, now, <laughs> yeah. now, the final question we ask on this podcast is mm. one we ask everyone, which is, "What is the worst advice you have ever been given, whether you ignored it or took it?" So, I, I, I've been given loads of what is probably bad advice, but it's never not useful because it often tells you something about the person giving it to you what their kind of fears or jealousies are or at least their own kind of um uh like their own way of thinking about things i have been given a piece of advice that i thought was terrible when i got it and i've since thought is brilliant which was to do your job as though you don't care about being fired just not don't worry about it 
don't don't ever think job security is important and obviously when you're a special advisor that seems the wildest thing to hear because you can be here today gone tomorrow anyway but once I started thinking like this I just gave much much better advice because I didn't mind what the repercussions were if it wasn't going to be popular and I just had my elbows out a little bit more I only spoke up when I really thought it was important and I would challenged much more and actually if you think about some of you know some of what we do know about special advisors in the last couple of years and I'm one of them um being a patsy is no good we have this we have this need for like ministers to hire uber loyal people who are most interested in their minister's kind of place within the party and actually it should be are they going to tell me things that I need to hear not what I want to hear so it did turn out to be quite good although that being said I don't work in politics anymore so it couldn't have been that good (laughs) but I did take it (laughs) well Perhaps the problem is lamps can't talk back. So. That's true, but they can be switched off, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly, that's where <laughs> I went wrong, wasn't you? Okay, thank you, Clea. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me.